0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
1: Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. I am your host, Mary Woods. CEO of Westbridge, and today we have a Pulitzer Prize winning author with us, Eric Newhouse, who is going to talk with us about um, the faces of combat and the Montana solution to what people are experiencing when they come home from um, Afghanistan and Iraq and and other wars as well. First, let me introduce Eric Newhouse, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, writes about um, this coming crisis of the returning veterans. He's also written in-depth about uh, alcoholism through personal in-depth interviews. Um, He has seen the devastation of both um, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and substance misuse and abuse. And he has written extensively about it. And Eric's also been one of the people that's helped to shine a light on this issue and hopefully he's going to be one of the people that really holds our feet to the fire in terms of finding a solution for it. So welcome Eric to our show.
2: Mary, it's a pleasure to be here. My uh, publisher declared that I was a crusading journalist and I think he's absolutely right. We don't have enough of this breed uh, left anymore and somebody's got to take up a flag and charge into battle and that's me.
1: And uh, that's a good uh, a good way to start our our uh, discussion today because charging into battle is something that we have done throughout our history and i think since 2001 um we've charged into battle in many areas without thinking about the um the costs that people pay when they return home i think we all are focused on getting people trained to be the best they can be but then, when they come home, they kind of get lost in the
2: shuffle. Actually, it's a long-standing American tradition. Uh, it goes all the way back to Vietnam. Uh, we've had a uh, an almost unending succession uh, of battles between Vietnam and now. Uh, we've gone through the Gulf War, Bosnia, Somalia, Panama. Um, it just Grenada. Didn't... Yep, absolutely. Uh, and it's. Uh, It is something that will catch up to us because uh, the vets that I talk to tell me you don't go through a battle like that uh, and come home unscarred.
1: What do you think is different about these wars than, for instance, um, when we think about World War II, uh, people experienced horrific combat in both the European theater and the Pacific theater, and yet the 50s and the 60s were a period of um, relative growth and success for a lot of veterans. Do you think people just masked it better?
2: No, I think uh, we've always had trauma. You know, all the way back to the Greek and Roman era, we've seen uh, evidence of PTSD, uh, evidence of people who came home severely messed up. I think the difference today, uh, and there are a bunch of them, one is that um, in World War One and World War II, we were attacked. Uh, and we were in effect defending our homeland, uh, our families, uh, and so there was a greater moral justification. The vets that I talked to uh, from Vietnam couldn't understand why we were there uh, and they're furious about our being in Iraq and Afghanistan because they they wonder what we've learned from Vietnam. Um, There are... And I think in World War One and World War Two, uh, it was pretty much um, a battlefield in which lines were drawn and uh, people lobbed shells at each other. Uh, the, um, there wasn't uh, the guerrilla warfare uh, to the degree that uh, we have it today. Uh, they got R and R. They went uh, to the South Pacific and uh, took a couple of weeks off, and they, uh, then came back to the battlefield. These guys are night and day. Uh, there is no time off. Uh, there is no time when they are not in danger, no time when they're uh, unthreatened. They may go through two, three, four combats a day and do that unendingly uh, for a calendar year and then discover a day before they're set to come home uh, that they've been extended for an additional three months uh, so that they're going to go 15 months instead of 12. There's just no security. There's nothing you can count on. Uh, you're you're facing death uh, every minute of every day uh, for... And indefinite number of days
1: you know when we um when we think about combat, you know we think about um I think about the Army, the Navy, the Marines, and growing up, the National Guard were the people that helped out during hurricanes and blizzards and um during the riots in the sixties but um you know the whole idea of joining the National Guard and ending up you know having to walk away from your home and your family. I think there's. it must be different than somebody who voluntarily joins the Army and knows this is going to be my life for the next two to four years.
2: Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons that uh, PTSD is so high. Uh, you've got a National Guardsman. He tends to be older. He realizes he's not invulnerable as he uh, thought he was as a teenager. Uh, he goes into battle not expecting that he would ever have to go to battle and being kind of bewildered by it. Um, while he's uh while he is in Iraq or Afghanistan he can uh, send emails to his wife and his family uh he can talk to him on the telephone and so uh his wife is telling him about uh the dishwasher blowing up uh and his boss calling because uh, he wasn't able to find an important project that this guy had going while he was working and he not only has to Save his skin every day, but he's worrying about what's going on at home and his kids' grades and all of those things. Yeah, it's like a double burden. And you know, I I look back on the Vietnam era. Um, I was drafted in 1968 uh, and served from 68 to seven. <coughs> excuse me, 68 to 70. Uh, and I remember the importance of a national draft, but I also remember the anger, growing anger, with it uh, as people looked at um, uh, losing their kids, sending them off to war and and losing them. When you send the National Guard over, uh, it eliminates uh, or at least reduces the need for a national draft that was so divisive during the Vietnam era and the other thing that the Bush administration did that was, that was um, a way, I'm convinced, of getting out of that National Guard, uh, out of that uh, national draft, it was to rely heavily on mercenaries. Uh, and I suspect that those are the only two reasons that that war is even barely palatable today. Um, it's the fact that uh, an awful lot of people aren't forced to send their kids there Instead, it's a combination of uh, patriotic draft and a, and a poverty draft.
1: You, you know, when we're thinking about um, post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, traumatic brain injury, one of the things that I think about is the fact that we have a much more sophisticated weapon system. So what what would traditionally um, cause casualties in maybe, you know, the... the the earlier wars, people are surviving those, the, the physical casualties, and the physical um, maiming, if you will. Uh, and now, we're are we seeing more PTSD because we do have better, um, you know, injury to hospital evacuation times, and um, or does that have absolutely nothing to do with it?
2: No, it has uh, an awful lot to do with it. Um, during World War One and World War Two. We had uh, two wounded soldiers for each soldier who was killed in action. During Korea and Vietnam, uh, we had three wounded soldiers for each soldier who was killed. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we have 16 wounded kids coming home for everyone who comes home in a body bag. Uh, Part of that uh, is much better medical triage on the field. Uh, We're able to save people that uh, weren't savable decades or generations ago. Part of it is body armor. Uh, we have Kevlar uh, uh, body vests that are protecting a soldier's vital arm, uh, vital organs. Uh, he may end up losing his arms or his legs. We have a lot of amputees coming home, but we also have a lot of people whose brains have been jarred uh, by RPGs or um, basically roadside bombs or, or rocket-propelled grenades. Uh, and those are kids that uh, might not have survived in uh, in previous wars, but they're coming home in record numbers now. And I think traumatic brain injury is going to be something that we are going to be hearing more and more about in the years to come because it's, uh, it's pervasive. Every time you get somebody whose uh, brains have been rattled inside his skull and he's lost consciousness, uh, there is brain damage that's done, uh, and you'll see it. At least at the beginning, but you may very well see it um, uh, enhanced as years go by because those damaged brain cells will die off uh, and may not be regenerated so it, it's a it's a problem that's going to that grows uh, and that will continue to grow
1: um, which kind of prompts us to uh, talk a little bit more about your actual book called Faces of Combat, PTSD and TBI, which has been recently published. And what compelled you to want to become a crusade for um, improved treatment for our veterans?
2: Well, Mary, I, I was drafted, as I say, in 68, and I watched what happened when uh, yeah, those kids came back from Vietnam. I was fortunate. Uh, I was able to serve stateside that entire time, uh, and so I didn't come back with the uh, with the trauma that many of them did. Uh, but I know the nightmares. I know the flashbacks. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, got a divorce and committed suicide. I don't think we put those pieces together at the time, but uh, we are certainly beginning to now. Since I didn't come home with the trauma that many of uh, my friends and my colleagues did, I'm in a position now where I can pay back by writing about uh, what happened, by writing about what's happening to the kids today, and by doing my darndest to make sure that uh, they don't fall through the cracks uh, in the way that my generation did.
1: In your book, you begin um, by telling the story of a young veteran who um, was actually decorated when he was in Iraq, and um, when he came home, he was just practically paralyzed and unable to really function. And could you kind of tell us Dana's story?
2: Chris, Dana was a specialist serving with the 163rd Infantry Unit uh, of the Montana National Guard, he was sent to Iraq, I think, in sixty in uh, in oh uh, five and came home in oh uh, six, and he never really talked about what he'd been through. But he was one of the he was a gunner in a Humvee. He was one of the guys that uh, blew up the enemy every chance uh, that he could get, uh, and he. Uh, uh, he'd been through a lot. He came home happy, exuberant. Uh, he thought he was a hero. His family treated him as a hero. Then he went back to working at Target uh, and uh, discovered that uh, he couldn't sleep anymore. Uh, he, I think, was seeing flashbacks, although he didn't talk about them very much. Uh, he began to isolate himself, withdraw from the family. He couldn't stand going to guard drills, couldn't stand getting in the uniform anymore. The memories were just too tough. And we, the National
1: um, take a break right there, and we'll come back, and you can talk finish um, telling us what happened with Chris, and we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Voice America, Health and Wellness.
3: Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's channel. fashion common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
0: step into a healthier you voice america health and wellness You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's
1: get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking with Eric Newhouse, who has written um, Faces of Combat, PTSD, and TBI. And before going to break, Eric was talking to us about Chris Dana and sharing his story. And could you continue with that, Eric, because I know it's a very powerful story.
2: Yeah, it was a story that uh, you know, was compelling out here and changed the way Montana has, uh, has dealt with combat vets, which is something we can get into in a moment. But when Chris came back, uh he he was uh, delighted to be back and then discovered he didn't fit uh his friends uh, seemed trivial uh what they'd been through seemed trivial he wanted to hang out with the uh, with the vets but uh he, we had a deal where uh, the guard drills uh, for the first 90 days were suspended to uh, to give the soldiers a break and so he never really saw his buddies for that first 90 days after that um He began to isolate from his family, from his friends, uh, and when the guard drills came back again, he didn't want to go to them because they were too hard. The memories were too great. So he began skipping the uh, guard drills, and the guard got angry with him. Uh, They called him up and told him that if he uh, didn't start coming to guard drills, he would uh, be thrown out of the National Guard essentially with a less than honorable discharge they called his parents nobody actually asked his parents what was wrong instead they said get your son to guard drills we think he's slacking. so there was uh... a couple of month period where chris didn't go and he got more and more concerned about it he began to spend his money down uh... and buy things that he didn't need uh... just uh, just to uh... use up his money on the uh... first of march two thousand and seven The Army sent him a note uh, saying that he had been thrown out of the guard uh, and he'd been given a less-than-honorable discharge. In effect, what that meant uh, was that Chris, as a soldier desperately in need of help, wouldn't get it. Um, The government no longer uh, owed him a responsibility. He no longer had benefits. He no longer had medical help. Uh, He was left on his own. And on March 4th, uh, as I was flying to New York City to judge Pulitzer Prizes, uh, Chris put a gun up against his head, muffled it with a pillow, and shot himself to death. It, um, it was a huge blow in Montana, which is a very, a very patriotic state, uh, and his death really rocked the rest of the state.
1: You know, one of the things that has always amazed me that I think is such a discrepancy is that in battle, um, commanders do whatever they can to protect um, the people under them, and people look out for each other. And then there's something happens once they get home. The fact that they thought that this kid was slacking, the fact that it was just, you know, foul orders, it just amazes me that there's that dichotomy.
2: It amazes me, too. Um, I've begun to see the soldier at home as a disposable soldier, Uh, and it is astonishing because when you think of the training and uh, the amount of money that they put into personnel, you'd think that they'd take better care of them. Uh, You don't throw a rifle away because it uh, it malfunctions. Instead, you take it apart and clean it and oil it and get it so that it's working well. Uh, And the military the army army needs to be able to do the same thing with its soldiers it's a a mentality that has existed for a long time uh when when somebody is demonstrating behavior that screams for help uh, you you think that uh, uh that he's slacking and defying orders and so you punish him and that makes things uh, only worse gradually here we're beginning to understand that uh, these are people who need our help and we need to to go out of our way uh, to fix the damages uh, that the government has caused.
1: In reading your book, um, Chris, Dana's experience was not an unusual one. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what combat was like based on the interviews that you took?
2: Yeah, I think about um, a soldier named Mike Zakia. Mike is a uh, stockbroker these days in Westchester, Connecticut, uh, and he, I think, illustrates pretty well what uh, what happens to people in Iraq. When uh, he met his uh, wife-to-be, Marcy, he was uh, athletic, he was outgoing, he was bubbly, he was happy, he was just a true gentleman in every sense of the word. Marcy thought he was perfect, uh, and they... Uh, were engaged when he went uh, when he went off to Iraq. He was a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel, and one of his jobs was to uh, train the Iraqi army. And so he did that. Um, but one of the things he faced was uh, a sniper who'd take a pot shot at him uh, just about every evening. Uh, and as it got dark, uh, Mike would lead his uh, his Iraqi troops. Uh, up into the hills to try and get that guy, and the guy would invariably go into a uh, a bombed-out building where uh, the night goggles didn't do any good because they worked on ambient light and there was no light. Mike would remember running through this uh, uh, deserted series of buildings with a sniper in front of him shooting back at him and with the Iraqi army behind him shooting up at the sniper. He said he could hear bullets uh, going every way, uh, and he expected to fully to be hit and die, but he never knew from which direction the the bullet would hit, because he said they were all incredibly bad shots. Later, he took uh, these soldiers to Fallujah, and uh, they ended up in door-to-door fighting, uh, some of the worst fighting that Iraq had to offer. Mike uh, remembers vividly uh, clearing apartment houses uh, and going up and down stairwells one inch at a time, waiting for somebody to pop out uh, and the resultant confrontation. He says that uh that took an incredible amount of courage. He remembers uh, uh a firefight uh in Fallujah where uh, he was leading three Iraqi soldiers um, to clear out a courtyard when somebody looked up and saw Two insurgents uh, with uh, a rocket-propelled grenade pointed straight at him. The Iraqis dove behind a low wall, and uh, Mike charged. He said the uh, rocket missed him but hit the wall, exploded, and the shrapnel blew his shoulder apart. Uh, He managed to kill the guys up on the uh, top of the building, but then uh, they tried to airlift him up to Germany, and he refused to do it. Uh, He insisted on morphine and uh, local treatment. Was back the next morning, leading his troops into uh, into action. Then at Christmas time, there was uh, uh, a one week break for Christmas. Uh, all Iraqi troops went home, and uh, a good many of them were captured by insurgents and tortured. When they came back, they were all debriefed, and Mike had to sit in the uh, uh, in the briefing room listening to what had happened to them. Yeah, they all told stories of uh, being cut and beaten and whipped, uh, having body parts lopped off, uh, being chainsawed, electrocuted, uh, even power drilled. Mike said it was just incredible what those people would do to each other. And he said listening to their stories, the stories of his men, the men he felt responsible for, was like being tortured. It was like being raped uh, uh, one story at a time. When he came home, he was a different guy. Uh, He spent the Fourth of July building a bunker in his basement uh, so that he could hide out from the pops and bangs and mortars that uh, ordinary Americans were celebrating with. They scared him uh, and brought nightmares and flashbacks back to him. Um, He had been through enough um, combat and had suffered concussions often enough that he ended up with TBI and he had short term memory loss. those things um uh contributed to a huge rage uh, and he and the slightest thing would set him off Marcy never knew what it would be but you could see the light in his eye change and uh and she flee whenever that happened one time she fled um went into a bathroom locked the door right just before my kid it he tried to break the door down uh, couldn't Uh, and for the next 45 minutes or so, she heard the sound of shattering furniture in the living room. After it had been quiet for a quarter of an hour or so, uh, she opened the bathroom door and discovered that all the furniture in the living room had been been shattered uh, and the splintered fragments were piled up at the front of the bathroom door, she was clearing the uh, debris away trying to get out of the bathroom uh, while Mike was realizing that he'd kind of gone over the top and he needed to do something about it, so he had gone to a florist shop. Uh, it was about quarter of five on a Saturday afternoon, and he wanted to buy a bouquet of flowers for his wife to make it right. He uh, stepped in, and the clerk wanted to close, um, and Mike wanted flowers, and they had uh, an increasingly angry uh, dispute about it. Finally, Mike picked up a bouquet of flowers uh, and uh, threw a $20 bill at the clerk. The clerk threw the change back at Mike. He caught it in his left hand and with his right hand uh, grabbed her by the throat and had her up against the wall and was squeezing the life out of her. Um, when he realized that he was employing uh, combat um, Uh, solutions to a civilian provocation, Uh, he let her down. She and he were both terrified, and he ran out of the store. He later told me that uh, he'd never been arrested, and he was awfully glad about it, because there were a number of times when he felt he could have been and should have been. And I've got to say to you, uh, what's wrong with the picture uh, of a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel Uh, running from a florist store uh, because he uh, was trying to kill a florist clerk uh, over uh, something as trivial uh, as a bouquet of flowers. But it really says to me the kind of damage that combat uh, does to people like Mike.
1: Well, and in reading your book, it really illustrates the damage to people like Mike but to the other people that you interviewed as well. And I can say that... I just felt terrible when I read the first part of your book because um, most of us have no idea what we ask people to do when we put them in harm's way and what people have to endure when they're there. But more so when they come home, reentering this, this world is so different. I can remember um, Vietnam as well and people that I knew had been in combat and 12 hours later they were stepping off an airplane in California and getting spit at, you know. And it's just unbelievable. Civilians aren't prepared for this either.
2: No, we are not. Uh, and the families of these combat vets pay a huge price. Um, I think that there is secondary PTSD uh, among many wives and among many children. Uh, and I, I think also that uh, that it can be generational. I've talked to a bunch of. Uh, of Iraqi vets uh, who come from patriotic homes. Uh, their dads were Vietnam combat vets. Uh, their dads came home with PTSD, drank heavily, had nightmares, uh, screamed at the wife, uh, and they ended up getting into trouble with the law. And the kids thought it was just perfectly normal. It, it was part of the warrior life, and it was something that they wanted to go do themselves. And they went and did it themselves uh, and came back equally, uh, equally scarred.
1: And we'll be right back to talk more with Eric Newhouse about PTSD and traumatic brain injury and what we need to do as treatment providers and as a society in general to help our returning veterans. We'll be right back.
0: Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
4: would it be crazy if you just stopped everything packed your bags and left for a week a month a year what if you left for two years would people think you'd lost your mind What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov.
0: A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Eric Newhouse, and I hope you're enjoying um, our show today and learning about what we need to do um, as a a society and as um, treatment providers to really improve um, the treatment for our homecoming vets. And in our last segment, um, you shared with us an experience of one Lieutenant Colonel Marine. Um, in his reentry coming home. And I'm wondering, this is the first war that I really know of that we've had women on the ground and women who were actually in combat that weren't nurses. I know that nurses have been certainly in combat, but they haven't been in combat with a gun or they haven't been driving a truck. Um, and I'm wondering what the experience is like for women.
2: You're right. Uh, in Vietnam, we had uh, nurses uh, who were who saw combat and who saw the aftermath of combat uh, and who came back with PTSD as well. Today we have a a whole different category. We have women on the ground with weapons uh, who are being shot at uh, and who are shooting back and killing. And it is a, a... it's a situation, one told me, that is abnormal for women who are supposed to be caregivers uh, and nurturers. Uh, they they were not designed to be killers, and it puts them in an abnormal role. I talked with a lady in Great Falls named Jamie Bender. Uh, Jamie was a combat photographer. Uh, she was what I call poverty draft. Um, she dropped out of high school. She had three kids. Uh, she could not make enough uh, on a on a an entry level wage to be able to pay daycare, and uh, she had no husband. She was kind of bouncing from man to man, uh, almost looking for shelter. So the army was her solution, and she ended up uh, thinking that. Well, she ended up in Iraq uh, as an army photographer and was in the middle of uh, a lot of combat. She remembers being on hillsides, taking pictures and being surrounded by body parts, uh, a boot with uh, toes sticking out of it, uh, uh, a hand with half the glove blown off, uh, but uh, with dirty fingernails and looking at it and thinking this guy must have been a, a mechanic because his fingernails were so dirty. She wrote stories and took photographs of four young soldiers um, who, about a week later, were all killed in the uh, explosion of a Humvee. And she remembers being at their memorial service. Uh, She was crying, and her commanding officer pulled her aside and said, never let anyone else see your emotions. If you can't keep control of yourself, I'm going to send you back stateside. So she turned off her emotions that day. And uh, went through the services. Didn't cry. Went uh, was coming back from the funeral service. Uh, heard uh, uh, scatter on the on the uh, police channels uh, and saw a cloud of smoke. And it was another exploded Humvee with four more of her friends dead. Um, when she came back, uh, she had a shield around her emotions. Uh, severe PTSD. Uh, but I think the women there face an additional challenge that uh, that we don't really know about. Uh, I read a day or two ago about um, two reports out of vet centers, uh, and if I remember correctly, they said that uh, two thirds of the women that are, have come to the vet centers for help report that they've been raped um were sexually assaulted, and ninety percent of them uh said that they had been uh um, had had been uh sexually abused uh or i 'm sorry sexually harassed uh and that 's something I think that we do do not know but basically uh, it seems that when you have soldiers in combat, uh, you're almost in a world where anything can happen. Uh, all of the conventional boundaries, all of the conventional taboos have gone. Uh, and I think that soldiers feel that that uh, anything goes, that they are their own law out there. Uh, and that applies also to to women. They talk about uh, bodyguards uh, or or uh, Uh, a latrine buddy, uh, somebody that they can uh, go back-to-back with uh, when they're going out to the latrine uh, so that they don't get uh, ambushed by their own soldiers. Uh, And that kind of mentality, even if nothing happens to you, that kind of mentality over over a solid year has got to leave a huge scar.
1: Well, and Ninety percent of those women that have been reported being abused, it isn't by the enemy; it's by the people that their own soldiers, by their own soldiers, by the people that they're fighting next,
2: you know, Mm -hmm. shoulder to
1: shoulder with. So, to me, that's like the ultimate betrayal. I mean, not only are you have an enemy that you're you've been enlisted to fight, you've got to fight your own countrymen.
2: Yep, you've got an enemy in front of you and an enemy behind you, and you're all alone frequently uh, women will be ten or fifteen percent of our fighting force, so there may be one or two or five uh, um, female soldiers in a company living uh, side by side um, sharing the same barracks uh, it's 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 not a it's not a thing that we should have done
1: well and the other thing that um, you brought out in your book that one of the women said was how rampant pornography was. Um, in the area that she was in, the movies, the books, so it's just more and more dehumanizing women as well. Not yeah. only the war, but the the um, I guess the passive okay of pornography is okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, it seemed to be acceptable, and it wasn't uh, until this woman got back to Wisconsin uh, with the Wisconsin National Guard uh, that she realized that that was uh, uh, just a uh an absolutely abnormal aberrant thing uh, she thought at the time that uh that if the boys were watching pornography uh, they weren't raping people uh, but she also uh, was sexually assaulted by uh, by an officer and as a 19-year-old enlisted woman uh, she didn't know what to do uh, it was almost as though she was expected to salute him while he was groping her yeah It uh, is so common that uh, the women have begun to call it uh, command rape.
1: You know, this is one of the ugly parts of the military. And while we should embrace our veterans, you know, it's also important to understand that um, nobody goes over there with a halo, and nobody comes back with one. Yeah, that they're human beings that do all the things human beings do.
2: Absolutely. Now. And I think that's one of the reasons one of the vets told me that uh, it, there has been a lot of debate about the prevalence uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. Uh, the Army would tell you that it's uh, 17 20%, 25% uh, of our troops come back and are scarred. The RAND Corporation suggests uh, that one soldier out of three is going to come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, with traumatic brain injury, or with major depression. But the soldiers that I've talked to say that that's insane. That nobody can come through something like that without uh, without suffering the consequences. And they say that the army should actually believe that everybody who comes back is going to be damaged and and to treat everyone for those damages uh, until somebody can prove that, uh, that he actually came through unscathed.
1: That would make the most sense, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, it actually would. Yeah, and for uh, the treatment community, you know, uh, that, uh, that would mean that uh, there is an awful lot more work to be done, but it would mean that uh, that if we do that work now, we don't have to do it in the future. You look at Vietnam. You look at uh, the 9 million uh, soldiers who came back. Nobody had even diagnosed PTSD. That wasn't uh, an AMA diagnosis until 1984. And even then, uh, those guys uh, never really got the help that they needed because they were embarrassed, they were ashamed, they were traumatized, uh, and most of them didn't even know know that they had a problem. One of the guys that I talked to here uh, um, had been, uh, was alcoholic. He'd had a bunch of wives. Uh, He'd uh, uh, had four different marriages, uh, and he thought it was normal. Uh, We now have 7 million Vietnam vets, uh, the the huge majority of whom have been suffering for uh, for four decades. Uh, They've never gotten the treatment that they needed. Uh, They are... uh, Approaching retirement age, uh, their minds are battered, their bodies are battered. Uh, they're beginning to hit a point in their life where uh, where they can actually stop and take care of themselves. Uh, and they're seeing what's happened in happening in uh, in Iraq. Um, there is going to, I suspect, there's going to be a tidal wave of uh, of Nam vets uh, seeking help in the next few years. Uh, With the uh, Iraqi and Afghan, that really is a small part of that. Here in Montana, that's already happening. Last year, we sent 120 soldiers uh, down to to, uh, Fort Sheridan, Wyoming, for acute PTSD treatment. And I think 60 of the 120 or 65 of the 120 were Vietnam-era vets. There was a bunch of um, Bosnia, Somalia vets in there, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Panama. I think of the 120, only five or six of them were Iraqi or Afghan vets. So it's, it's something that we really, really need to work on now because it's going to be a growing and a, and a major challenge for all of our caregivers and for our country as a whole.
1: I know last year we interviewed a judge in Nashua, New Hampshire, who had developed a mental health court, and what he was beginning to to see were the number of veterans that were coming before him for assault. Um, One man had run a red light um, because he was boxed in on either side and didn't feel safe, and he ran a red light, and there was a policeman, a couple cars behind him. Mm -hmm. The policeman pulled him over, and he wouldn't get out of the car, and when he got out of the car, the, the veteran attacked him. But it was a total flashback for the veteran. Yeah. And, and what this judge had the um, foresight to understand is that this man needed treatment. He didn't need to go to jail. And that we needed to have veterans' courts because so many of the guys coming back are put in situations like this. They end up getting arrested. They end up getting put in jail. When That's not what they need. They're responding to a situation that's related to their combat experience. And, and as civilians, we need to understand that, too.
2: Those vet diversion courts are absolutely wonderful. There are far too few of them, but they they really make a tremendous difference. We had a a vet who came out to Montana from West Virginia. Uh, He was an ex-Army ranger. Uh, He was one of the people who helped rescue uh, Jessica Lynch. Um, When he got back, uh, he had terrible nightmares, severe uh, flashbacks, uh, drank heavily, got in a plane, busted it up. Uh, and was arrested when he uh, hit the ground in Great Falls, woke up in jail, didn't know where he was, called his mom. His mom mercifully called the prosecutors and, and called me and said, my son's a hero. He needs help, not punishment. And the prosecutor and the public defender got together uh, and worked out a deal where the kid could plead guilty to a misdemeanor, and his sentence was to be um, was to receive treatment at Fort Sheridan. I later went back to West Virginia and met the kid uh, and his eyes were clear. He uh, was a taxidermist uh, he had his own taxidermy business um, He was uh, battling PTSD, but he was uh, he was learning how to cope with it uh, and he was a kid that uh, that received help instead of punishment and really really benefited from it. We'll be
1: back to talk about further solutions in our last segment and to learn about the innovative things that the state of Montana is doing to help their returning vets. And we'll be right back.
0: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself. Beyond Skin Deep, plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
4: dad can i ask you something sure there's this girl i kind of like say no more
0: you just have to impress her okay but how just i don't know pick up a lot of heavy things around her like what you know desks, chairs people grunt if you have to grunt yeah
4: be like Uh, Uh, oh there you go you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent when you adopt a child from foster care just being there makes all the difference to learn more call 1-888-200-4005 a public service announcement brought to you by adopt us kids the u.s department of health and human services and the ad council
0: opinions options answers voice america health and wellness
1: Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Eric Newhouse. And in our final segment, Eric is going to share with us some of the solutions that um, have been developed in Montana and some of the treatments that have been proven to be effective for um, people with PTSD and TBI. So, Eric, you've got nine minutes to tell us all about it.
2: Wow. I've got a six-hour subject and nine minutes to do it. Uh, so let me, uh, let me start by telling you that when Chris Dana died, Montana went into a a really a one-year introspective period, came out with recommendations, uh, 13 of them, all 13 adopted by the Montana National Guard, and it's become a national model. One of the things we're doing uh, is creating crisis response teams. When someone like Chris falls through the cracks instead of threatening him uh, we're sending out uh, an officer, a senior NCO, a personnel manager, a chaplain, uh, and a couple of other people to try and find out what the kid's problem is uh, and how he can get help. Uh, it's part of that system of uh, um, of creating soldiers uh, and helping them rather than disposable soldiers. A second thing uh, is that uh, we are embedding counselors in our National Guard armories during drill weekends. Uh, we are, uh, uh, it was a model developed by TriWest, and it, it's designed to have a counselor there talking to soldiers, uh, talking to soldiers' buddies, looking for problems, interacting with them, uh, and, uh, uh, and getting them help if, uh, if they ask for it or if it seems necessary. In the first six months that we did this, um, with about uh, almost 1,900 soldiers, the counselors saw almost 550 of them. Of uh, of those soldiers, they referred 40% of them for treatment. Now, and these are the kids who felt well enough uh, to come to uh, a drill weekend. So. There's a a second set of eyes on those kids to make sure that they get the help they need. Uh, We also have uh, begun to bring soldiers back uh, for National Guard drills uh, for the first 90 days that they're back from combat. The idea is that they uh, they can talk with their buddies uh, and get support from uh, that natural support group. But we know that they don't need to learn to be soldiers, better soldiers. Uh, They really need to be uh, better husbands and fathers and employees. So the drills are held in civilian clothes uh, at a convention center. The wives are invited and the families are invited. Government pays for mileage and meals and uh, daycare. And it's a social weekend where uh, the soldiers and their families can get together and talk about what uh, each of them have been through uh, so that there is – Communication and a better understanding of the uh, uh, the trauma that each of them has faced. Um, it's something that uh, uh, that uh, it's a weekend at which uh we aren't focusing on uh on weapons or, or on battle techniques, but instead there are sessions on uh, marriage enrichment on anger management on financial planning uh on veterans' benefits uh on how to reach out to your kids uh, and it really strengthens uh the guard family which which I think is very important so this has been so successful here that Montana Senator uh, Max Baucus has just introduced legislation. Um, oh, you know, I forgot the most important part of that uh, of that program, and that is that um, Montana is now testing its uh, its soldiers for PTSD and TBI. Every six months uh, for the first two years that they are back uh, from combat, we've realized that uh, PTSD often does not occur on the battlefield. You don't see symptoms for six months uh, to a year after a soldier returns from combat. So we've begun testing those soldiers, uh, and then there's a mental health segment of that uh, of the annual physical exam uh, Max Baucus, Montana Senator, has just introduced legislation uh, that would require uh, the Army Reserve, uh, the Army National Guard, and active duty military to do the same thing uh, nationally. It's a program that they estimate would cost about $220 bucks to, to implement over a five-year period, but it's also a program that could save a whole bunch of our, uh, of our kids.
1: And you also researched different types of treatment as well when you were doing your book. Is there any that you want to share with us?
2: Yeah. The VA, when I talked to um, VA Secretary James Peake, uh, as a medical doctor, he said, you know, I really want to help these guys, but I don't want to experiment with soldiers. I don't want to do anything that's uh, that's outside, uh, uh, outside the box, basically. So he... Uh, uh he basically kept the v a doing group therapy, doing one on one therapy uh and uh and pushing pills. There were a lot of medications prescribed then and still are, but there are some things that are outside the box that seems to be working. One of them is called alpha stem alpha stem is a uh, uh is an alpha wave uh that comes out of something that looks like an iPod. You put an electrode on each ear, and it will uh, run a meditating uh, uh, alpha wave uh, through your brain and calm you down and allow you to sleep. Another uh, is um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization, which basically um, uses your physical reactions to calm your brain down. There is uh, biofeedback and neurofeedback. Uh, which will will allow soldiers to uh, uh, to treat themselves uh, and to slow their brain and their hyperactivity and their hypervigilance down. Uh, there's a technique called EFT, emotional freedom technique, uh, which basically uses Chinese acupressure points, uh, and by tapping on them, uh, uh, restores a natural neural neurological flow to uh, in the nerve centers. And finally, uh, I did a story just a week or so ago about something called uh, bridging the mind-body consciousness, uh, which employs um, when you're trying to sleep, uh, you focus on senses, uh, on what you hear, what you feel, what you see, what you smell, and use that to, uh, to, to slow hyperthinking down. Um, there are a bunch of things I think that uh, that the VA needs to be doing and testing because we have so many people uh, who need so much help uh, that that we really need to be doing some abnormal things, some out of the box things to get them the help they need.
1: And to help jumpstart some of the treatments as well. I know that there was some uh, some people are using Perpanerol to help dim the memory.
2: Uh, yeah, there was uh, and there was some fear that uh, uh that that would erase the memory. It, it doesn't, but it does dim it. Uh, there are there are medications that do that, but I always wonder if the medications are masking the problem uh, and whether we ought to be uh, letting the brain uh, heal itself without without meds any way we can.
1: Yeah, that's that's always a dilemma, isn't it? Yeah, it
2: really is.
1: Do they help or do they hurt? Yep. Eric, thank you so much for being um, our guest on our show today and for bringing to light this um, issue that all Americans really need to be aware of and that we need to help our vets when they're returning home and to be aware that they come back forever changed. And uh, we have a responsibility to help them. So thank you so much.
2: Well, Mary, thank you for having me. Thank you for all that you're doing, and good luck with the treatment.